0: Hello, and welcome to the Theatrical Mustang Podcast. This is Olena filling in for Katie Woodsick, and today is episode 68 with Noah Duffy, also known as Woody Shticks. Noah slash Woody is a member of the Libertinis, which is an interdisciplinary performance ensemble delivering genre-blending storytelling. Noah and I talk about Chekhov a lot, and the Libertinis' upcoming remount of the hilarious And I mean, like, I could not stay in my seat, hilarious, devised piece called Uncle Siegel, uh, which you will have to see to believe. Um, We also talk about Noah's work with the Siegel Project, which is a Seattle-based ensemble exploring Chekhov's work through long form rehearsal processes. Uncle Siegel will be performed as part of Seattle's upcoming Fringe Festival, and performances are February 26th and 27th and March 4th and 5th at 9 o'clock p.m. For tickets, check out the link on the Libertini's Facebook page. And that's Libertini's L-I-B-E-R-T-I-N-I-S. And the link on Facebook will take you to their Click for Ticks site. Um, I hope you enjoy this episode. I certainly... Had a great time talking to Noah. Thank you so much. Thank you to today's sponsor, Island Shakespeare Festival. ISF is Whidbey Island's professional regional repertory theater. Their 2016 summer season runs July 8th, to September 11th, with As You Like It, directed by artistic director Susanna Rose Woods, Julius Caesar, directed by award-winning Seattle director Corey McDaniel, who's also the producing artistic director of Theater 22, and finally Julie Beckman will direct her award-winning adaptation of Jane Eyre, which premiered at Book It Rep in 1999. For more information about Island Shakespeare Festival, visit their website at www.islandshakespearefest.org and check out their Facebook page. Uh, And we've also just launched the 2016 membership drive, so check that out as well. This is Olena filling in for the lovely Ms. Woodzik, and I am here very excitedly with uh, Noah Duffy slash Woody Shticks. And we're going to talk about um, Chekhov, and uh, also Chekhov, and maybe some other stuff, but lots of Chekhov, (laughs) which is just too exciting for me. Party time. um, my next love after Shakespeare. (laughs) (laughs) Sometimes they're right on par.
1: So, Mm -hmm. you know. They tend to compete depending on where in the world you're from.
0: Definitely. Yeah. Yes. So, I would love a little bit of history about you, and kind of. What did you grow up in Seattle? What brought you to this scene and what's your theater background?
1: Yeah, I'm very much not from Seattle. Okay. Uh, I grew up in Atlantic City, New Jersey. That is not Super Seattle. Super classy, no. A lot of sequins, a lot of showgirls, Great. a lot of tragedy. Um, but I yeah, grew up in South Jersey and lived there for the whole first portion of my life and mm-hmm. then moved to New York. And in New York, I went to school for theater, classical theater, and then took a break and went on tour and kind of traveled the country and then landed in Seattle and finished my BFA at Cornish College of the Arts. So I'm like uh, an honorary Cornish student, I guess. Um, Did about a year and a half there. And then uh, now I have my BFA in theater and dance, whatever that means. Cool. Um, But yeah, I started uh, first as a ballet dancer and was in a company for about 10 years and then transitioned to classical music and then transitioned to theater. So I kind of did all the pieces of musical theater separately and kind of you now yeah. merged them together into one really weird, uh, you know, stripper hybrid. So <laughs> it, it carries me forward and, uh, you know, all those weird pieces kind of contribute to an even weirder whole. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Cool. Yeah.
0: Um, so I saw in, wh- what month was that even?
1: November. November. Think, yeah.
0: In November, I saw the Libertini's production of Uncle Siegel
1: hmm
0: which is absolutely in my top 10 favorite pieces of theater I've ever seen it was it was for for one who loves Chekhov it was so funny I thank you literally couldn't stay in my chair
1: thank I you. actually
0: couldn't my butt did not want to
1: <laughs> stay seated that's so, what we like yeah, you know, it just, was, like, it butts was, that are so excited that they have to was move.
0: was so stoked. Uh, it, was, it was so funny. Thank I, you. I just will talk much more about that production, but uh, to me it was so, it's so perfectly captured what is so often missed in Chekhov, that fine line of, like, the hilarity of the situation. And so Uncle Siegel is three birds.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Those, they're the main characters. Yeah,
1: three seagull sisters who are stuck in a cherry orchard who can't leave. Oh my god, it's so,
0: it's so. And it grew,
1: it grew from a really weird place. You know, the Libertinis, we've been, this is our fourth season, Uh and we are a generative ensemble, so we build all new work with each other. And um, we are now, we've gone through some iterations, but we are now uh, Tootsie Spangles, Hattie Hellcat, and myself, Woody Stix and we uh kind of just spitball with each other and mm-hmm. between the three of us we kind of make like in my opinion the perfect comedian we have like the three pieces of of generation kind of within oh, us cool. in terms of like mm-hmm. you know one of us is like a total idea machine and one of us is great at editing on their feet and one of us is great at editing posts you know what i mean uh-huh. so together we kind of are able to craft scripts really quickly mm-hmm. and we uh have been every season experimenting with how we program our season and so last year we, in season three, we decided to do three main stage shows that each of us would kind of conceive and direct. Mm -hmm. And so last November we did a show called Oral Tradition, which I uh, kind of steered the ship on. And that was a storytelling show where we each told long form stories, uh, from our personal life from Mm -hmm. growing up, um, which was super special to us. And we've all done storytelling in different, uh, amounts and in different settings, you know, and, and, uh, so that was our, that was like my show in November. And then uh, Hattie Hellcat conceived and directed a show called Your Cheatin' Heart. Um, and we have a writing partner. His name is Max Kirshner. Um, Also happens to be Hattie's husband, but is an amazingly talented writer of a lot of different degrees. And so we crafted this like really dusty, a, you know, whiskey-in-your-boots kind of Western. Mm-hmm. Um, and then this past summer, we did Atomic Falls USA, which was, like, this huge, glittery blowout kind of conceived and steered by Tootsie Spangles um, about a community that was stuck in a bunker in the 1950s. Wow. And, uh the end of the show is a question as to whether or not, like, there was an actually apocalyptic event or not. But uh-huh. either way, it's like these these kids mostly kind of discovering themselves and sexuality stuck in this bunker. Wow. In the midst of, like, you know, botulism and, like, A lot of, like, psychedelic drugs and, Uh you know, all that stuff. So that kind of season was really exhausting for us, but so wonderful to kind of experiment with these huge shows that incorporated a lot of other cast members, with Uh the exception of oral tradition. And then in the midst of that time, we were programming a lot of small things in there, like our art party series at the Pocket Theatre and a lot of, um, you know, one-off events and kind Mm of more nimble content Mm -hmm. that more closely resembles, like, you know... uh, just the three of us, or things that are, like, a little bit closer to sketch, shorter uh-huh. concepts that aren't necessarily good shows, and during that time, we were sitting on Hattie's porch, which is kind of our, like, base of operations, and uh, somebody, and honestly, like, it was a collective joke that I don't think any of us took seriously for a while, but somebody asked, you know, we were talking about Chekhov, and I've been involved with the Seagull Project for a long time, so we talk about Chekhov a lot just personally, uh-huh. um, and with just the phrase Uncle Seagull came up and we thought it was like a really funny, stupid joke. And that was a full (laughs) year ago. That was a long time ago. And we had hoped, we were like, well, let's look at season four and kind of see where we can put it. Uh Uh-huh and it kind of just was something that didn't leave us you know we have a lot of weird ideas that will come and go and then uh-huh. some weird ideas that stick around and Uncle Seagull yeah. is one of those ideas that stuck around
0: well I'm glad it and stuck
1: around yeah we, and we it was so surprising to us because we're all theater kids you know we're all trained basically as classical actors who uh-huh. are then trained as strippers who are then trained as comedians <laughs> so like we kind of cover the full gamut yeah. of like the weird stuff that we do and so we all had a deep deep love for Chekhov and uh, a lot of experience performing Chekhov uh-huh. and, and kind of dissecting Chekhov and since we're all theater kids you know we do a lot of like dramaturgy and our our yada 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 like background theater work you know (laughs) and so uh in that we discovered that we actually knew a lot about the plays themselves Uh and we were pretty familiar with the the base text and from there kind of figured out what kind of world uh these animals would live in you know and it kind of went through some iterations but I think the whole time we knew that it was going to be birds stuck in this cherry orchard and then um as as we built the show together in the Libertini's fashion, which is basically just us like starting a recorder and going to town, and we improv together in rehearsals, and we write separately and come back, and every show is different the way we build it, but uh, mm-hmm. this one we really discovered that we wanted to weave the storyline of the humans into the yeah. plot itself. Yeah, and I so, love like, that
0: commentary, yeah. it's so cool just to have that other perspective on right. Because in Chekhov, the, the characters are so self-absorbed, right? Um, we be, the audience becomes that lens mm-hmm. of like watching them, and, right. and what's funny is watching these people experiencing these ridiculous circumstances with. No understanding that they're experiencing these ridiculous circumstances. It right. is just life for right. them. Right, right. So then to hear the commentary of these birds in these ridiculous circumstances commenting on the people, it was just such a great way to kind of balance
1: that yeah that was really it, was, cool. it was fun to do you know and yeah. and in those plays you know there's so many storylines going on in all of them and there's so many people and there's so yeah. many names and there's so <laughs> many so like, many
0: names for <clears throat> the same character
1: right ridiculous <laughs> subplots that pop up yeah. that are like sometimes not tied and yeah and all of that is what we love about Chekhov but also mm. I think like adding another more absurdist element to that yeah. kind of world like because you're just adding another three storylines to story like 20 in a standard player you know and so it it wasn't too much of a stretch to just like have another perspective but to kind of view the whole thing through that perspective and to emulate some of the situations that the characters go through you know in our show um, we throw a party that no one comes to and that kind of you know kind of connects very deeply to the three sisters and you know there's in each play you know we can point to specific things in the script that we're like oh this is my favorite part of this play yeah, or this is something that I personally experience you know and and being clowns the three of us trained as clowns and working primarily through clown as a medium and, mm-hmm. you know, and not just like the rainbow wig and like red nose right, right. kind of clowns, but that, you know, that approach to theater mm-hmm. and approach to life, which is that like 100% earnest and that fully committed to mm-hmm. pursuing a task and a goal. And the
0: grotesque a little right. bit too. The, absolutely. The grotesque natures of, and by grotesque, by grotesque we mean like larger-than-life flaws, kind of, and finding those and making them. Right. Like, really committing to those. Right.
1: Which is so human, you know? And I think that so much of, you know, obviously our day-to-day is, like, being aware of those flaws, but finding a way to, like, still, like, do our hair and drink our coffee and feel like mm-hmm. we show up for the day, like, I'm here! Mm-hmm. Um, but so much of clown is by, like, you know, showing up for the day without all of those other things on top. Right. So that you are just, like, this raw onion, just, like, weeping yeah. all over the yeah, place, yeah. you know? And so to create Chekhov characters, that, and that's really the truth, you know? And, mm-hmm. like, we, it was really important to us to create a show that was not a parody of Chekhov, but a love letter to Chekhov. And yeah. Because we do love and appreciate Chekhov and know the importance, you yes. know? And, and and I think
0: that was very clear. Thank you. Absolutely. Thanks. That's our
1: big goal because we love, as clowns, we love sending things up and we yeah. love, we're definitely the ones that'll make the weirdest jokes and like yeah. nonstop jokes, but we, we do love and appreciate so many things and like Chekhov is one of those things. And I so, think
0: that there was enough care taken with um, the themes in Chekhov and those common threads that do draw us, draw humans to those stories like, in a way that we can empathize and mm-hmm. connect. Mm-hmm. There was enough of that maintained, even with the absurdity, that it really still, those poignant moments were really poignant. Right. And when no one came to the party, it's like, I'm laughing really hard, because it's so funny to watch you guys shift from this like, enthusiasm right. and, and anticipation and excitement. And like, tiny and bird excitement. flower, like, party hats. Oh my hats. god, <laughs> so funny. But then also, like, that feeling is something we all know and have experienced Absolutely. at some point. And so there's this, like, awful connection to that. And then it's like, I'm also crying and laughing and I don't know what to do with myself. Right. So I think, yeah, it captured that. Thank you.
1: Yeah, it was important (laughs) to us that it was not only a love letter though because we feel like, you know... And this is me personally, I'll say too, is that there are so many tribute shows in Seattle. Mm -hmm. You know, and especially like we have roots in burlesque, although we're not a burlesque troupe by any means. We do have like some basis in burlesque. And uh, I love, there's so much burlesque that is like tribute burlesque, and there's so much burlesque that is themed burlesque. And we love that. And we love doing that on like separately. Um, And it's important to us as a company to find ways to like capture that excitement of like what is a theme that we really love, but also to like hold it up for inspection you know and and not Mm -hmm. just like look at these themes that we love but like how do these themes relate to what we're doing and so it was important to us to have a love letter but also a ransom note and really to say you know this material is a hundred years old what in this material is outdated what in this material needs to be needs to be examined from like a socially aware perspective Mm -hmm. what in this material needs to be examined through a feminist perspective and through a queer perspective and as like a feminist queer led ensemble um that's always important to us Mm -hmm. you know and and my work with the Seagull Project you know I've been kind of really deeply entrenched in Chekhov for four years now um with with them and traveling the world and and examining it from a totally different perspective from this Mm -hmm. like hyper realism um with elements of the absurd but like that real you know like a true like this is Chekhov you yeah. know with a capital C right and so uh, yeah. it's it's really a great exercise for me to spend so much time with this material that I truly deeply love but also to examine it critically and say like mm-hmm. how is this material outdated mm-hmm. how are these especially women how are these women being treated in these plays and th- these are rich white stories written by a rich uh-huh. white playwright mm-hmm. you know which at the time is completely a- you know accurate based on yeah. who's seeing these shows but like is that accurate anymore you know and there's so much talk in Seattle about making making work that reflects the diversity of our audiences you know and there are a few theater companies in town who are really doing that and it's our goal to always at least ask those questions and get better at answering them and maybe not answering them at all but just keep asking them Mm -hmm. in terms of like you know again Chekhov at its heart is stories of rich white people it
0: is it is and and it's Beautiful stories, yeah. and stories we still can relate Human to, but absolutely, he was writing at a very specific time, mm-hmm. with a very specific lens, mm-hmm. and that's what all of the stories are. I think it's so interesting, because um, with Shakespeare, we don't, I mean, he was writing at a very specific time, but none of his plays really take place at the same right. time period. You know, right. they're all over the place with... Um, the worlds that they're set in, mm-hmm. whereas Chekhov and is very
1: fanciful. Yeah, a lot, you know yeah, what I mean. A lot of yeah. a lot of fiction and a lot of
0: lots of fiction.
1: Weird places that mm-hmm. don't make sense. Yeah. yeah.
0: Whereas Chekhov is very much in a place and time. Right. All the time. Right. And it's it can be really tricky to find the truth in that uh-huh. today. Uh-huh. In some ways, I think in some ways there's a lot that's still relevant because yeah. we are still humans and people experience the same jealousies and. Insecurities and Mm -hmm. everything. But, yeah, that lens is interesting to investigate.
1: And I think that we've all seen, I definitely have, seen, like, Chekhov adaptations specifically. Shakespeare, again, it's a little more flexible, but Chekhov adaptations that are, like, updated or somehow made to be, like, contemporary. And I believe in that because I believe Mm -hmm. in, in... not holding anything sacred. You know what I mean? You do whatever you want. Make the art that you want to make. But I also know that for me, Chekhov is most resonant when it's looked at in its particular time period. Yeah. You know? And like, looking at the story of Three Sisters, I think like, applying a modern feminist lens is like, well, why didn't these women just leave? Right. Why didn't yeah, they get out they, of their house? They had different know? options now. Right. Exactly. And that's the thing is like, I read a great book once that kind of compared... it it talked about comparing time periods to, like, Flintstoneizing, you know? So, Mm -hmm. like, we look back at, like, the Stone Ages and we we place our modern sensibility on, like, well, look at this family dynamic. Look at the role of women. Look at the role of men. Look at the role of children. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And and look at how hard life was. And, like, that's a really easy perspective to take, you know, thousands of years later. And in the same way, even though it was 100 years ago, it's really Mm -hmm. easy to say, like, well, look at these women being powerless in this situation. Right. But that's, like, applying 100 years of evolution of thought, you know, to, like a very specific time and place, you know? Yeah. And in the in the con- in the the context of Three Sisters, for instance, those women didn't have an option, largely, you know? And right. that informs the story. And, yeah. like, I don't know that in the same... I don't know that you could take the same scenarios and set them in 2016 and have them yeah. be as relevant, you know? Right. Because there, and, is, and there and are more women And have those women be as strong ways. to
0: play as right. they are in check. I mean, right. playing any of those women is... They are all fighters. Yes. And they yes. are not satisfied with their life as it is and want something different and don't Mm -hmm. feel they have the tools to make something different.
1: Right. Right. And I see, you know, people that have seen modern adaptations or like that have some, you know, understanding of Chekhov and consistently say to me, but they're, they're also whiny you know, they're all just so selfish. And I'm mm-hmm. like, well, aren't we?
0: Yeah. <laughs> you know,
1: we are. We are. Yeah. And, and, and of course, you know, and again, their selfishness is based in a very particular time and place mm-hmm. and that, like, you know, the advent of the Russian Revolution and, and right. the the complete toppling of social order and, like... Of course, those concerns are resonant. And in a large way, Chekhov was writing to illustrate those problems Mm -hmm. and to illustrate the decline of the bourgeois and of, like, the... And and even in theater, you know, from a dramaturgical perspective, he's writing to, like, counter this decadent school of, like, of sentimentality and of of absurd and of absurd realities where, like, these women really represented what at least a portion, a large portion of the theater-going audience in Russia was really going through Mm -hmm. and was really looking at their world. Right. It wasn't this
0: idealized version of escapism in theater. Right. It was like he and his contemporaries started a whole new trajectory for theater Mm -hmm. in Russia and theater in the world, Mm -hmm. really, since then. Yeah. Because they told stories that needed to be told at that time. Yeah. I feel like what he was doing is very similar to what, for example, the queer movement in theater would be. Yeah. It's not stories that are being told, and it is stories that need to be told. Right. And that people are hungry to tell and hungry to hear.
1: Right, and stories that are reality for yeah. the theater-going audience. Yeah, you know, exactly. That we can hang our hat on those things. We can see those things in our daily life. Yeah. And really identify with the way that they shake out, you know, and, and that's, that to me is great theater. It's just a reminder of what we're going through every day. And, Uh and, you know, I come
0: to nature, that's the whole point, right? Right.
1: right. And, and to really examine and to, to break away some of our coping mechanisms that are totally healthy Mm -hmm. and in a lot of ways really necessary, but can also just like dull us to the sense of, like, I'm really feeling this ache, you know? But this ache inside of me, whatever it comes from. But our day-to-day, it requires us to put on all these layers of protection because it's just, we can't walk around, like, an exposed wound all the time. Mm-hmm. We just can't. Right, You know? And right. so by by going to theater that really pulls back those layers of the scab, it's, like, it really reminds us that, like, oh, man, I am hurting. And I put on all of these layers on top of myself just to get out of the house today. Mm-hmm. And that's necessary and and admirable but also I need some time to just like let myself like air out you know Mm -hmm. and be in a sacred space and um you know in any theater that I do I hope for that you Mm -hmm. know and and I and I love and appreciate when I see that when I'm a part of that as an audience member Mm -hmm. you know because I think that there's a definite care given to that you know as theater practitioners yeah and um it's an interesting line to walk, though, too, because I know of a lot of uh, people that I love and respect that hold this idea that, like, theater should heal and theater should be healing for the masses, and I believe in that. But I also question, well, what is healing, and am I right. am I qualified to say what heals the masses? Quote. Mm-hmm. Um, not really, you know, and by assuming that I do, it kind of contributes to this problem of power and contributes yeah. to this problem of privilege. You know, yeah. like, me being, like, I'm broke as a joke, but I'm still white in the first world. And so, yeah. like, you know, by me assuming that I know what the world needs to heal, like, I think it just contributes to this problem of, like, I have no idea mm-hmm. of even of, of even your experience or, like, even a, somebody who lives in my building, you know? Like, right. we have very different needs. Yes. They overlap in a lot of yeah. ways, but yeah. who knows?
0: And, and can overlap, and I think it's our job just to... Maybe create theater that we need. Yeah, and someone else is going to need it yeah. too. Yeah. So,
1: I and don't know. Asks, I imagine that asks good questions rather than answering them. You yeah. Know? And there's exactly. a, there's a time and place to answer those yes. questions, but.
0: And I think that's what Chekhov's doing. Yeah. With his characters, he's he's presenting no solution. Mm-hmm. He's just presenting the problem mm-hmm. and saying, you know, here's how we're living, and here are common experiences. And I don't have a solution, so his characters don't have a solution, but maybe he inspires a solution in the crowd.
1: Right. You know? Right,
0: right. Maybe someone sees that and is like, hmm, well, that is how we're all living. What can we do?
1: Mm hmm. You -hmm. know? And I found, like, even in my, uh, so I've been with the Seagull Project now for. Four years, yeah, can you talk a little years. bit, yeah. I'm going gonna,
0: I'm gonna to press my coffee right now. Of course. Can you talk a little bit about kind of how that started? Absolutely. And what...
1: Yeah. So the Seagull Project is basically is. like, uh, yeah. it started as nine veteran actors in Seattle coming together to decide that they wanted to play roles in Chekhov, that they... Either assumed that they wouldn 't ever be cast in or uh-huh. hadn 't been cast in yet, uh-huh. and so uh, they all kind of came together under the umbrella of um, they were doing a du- another show at Seattle Shakespeare Company, and they decided to kind of meet together and read the script and and the original intention was to build a very grassroots like uh, production mm-hmm. that you know might be a reading, might be a black box, might be something um, just really simple that they could explore these characters and yeah. give a lot of time and uh, these nine actors kind of worked together for nine months and um, toward the end of that process they reached out to myself and a fabulous musician and comedian named Lindsay Leonard um, who I knew previously through um, other projects and so Lindsay and I both went on uh, as musicians who also played roles in the show and so I played the accordion which uh, I'm not even a great accordionist but I think like anybody who can like put an accordion on their body like it's a visual <laughs> it's, it's like a, a visual buffet you yes, know what I mean absolutely. like people are like that looks crazy like <laughs> there are much better accordionists than I but you know it's it, it does provide a nice element you yeah. know and so um, Lindsay and I were tickled Lindsay plays the violin and so we were tickled to join the ensemble and kind of provide the music and between the two of us we kind of lived led the, the musical side on, under the direction of Rob Whitmer. Um, and this kind of ensemble kind of blossomed and uh, grew into this decadent, beautiful production. and. Funding came in and support came in and act theater stepped up and so much happened all at once to kind of lift this production to a mm. huge way larger than I think anybody <laughs> had anticipated. And um, you know being the, the primary company being mostly equity actors, you know there were a lot of things that we had to consider anyway. So yeah. by, by kind of accidentally stumbling into this huge production, we started a snowball that has that is still rolling you know and um, and, and at that point after uh, our first production of the Seagull, directed by John Langs at ACT in January of 2013, I think is correct. Um, There was kind of a question mark as to how the company would continue. Would it continue under what guise, under doing what work? Um, And so we were kind of floating around as the producers kind of um, just did a lot of legwork behind the scenes. And uh, it was announced to the ensemble that we would be traveling to Uzbekistan um, to be the centerpiece of the first ever American Culture Festival there in Tashkent, mm. um, which was an unbelievable opportunity for us. One of the company members, Tyler Palumsky, inside of our ensemble had worked as a company member of uh, the Ilkom Theatre in Tashkent, which is this unbelievable theatre company that is built on the, the, the love and the heart and the backs and the brains of some of the best artists that I've ever had the opportunity to see work or work with. And so they create just su- such vibrant, visceral theater in repertory. So they work in this, this like, unbelievable former Soviet space in Tashkent. Um... Uzbekistan itself is kind of this really uh, wonderful mix of a lot of different influences and a lot of different oppressive influences as well. And out of that comes some really dynamic theater. And so we went... And so the, was
0: that the initial connection? Was that company member? Yes, that Tyler Barnes. And... Yes,
1: exactly. And, and another one of our, our company members had traveled there previously and taught mm-hmm. there before. Oh, so cool. Had so some, had some connection. But mm-hmm. I think Tyler was definitely the one who was most recently in the company. Um, and his wife, who lives here in the States, was also a company member there. And... Um, Tyler is is multilingual and speaks Russian um, as well as Uzbek and English, and so wow. it was a great tool for us to be able to you know translate our work. And since, of course, we're working with, um, you know, the the Shakespeare of Russian language. You know, like we're working with the poet. You yes. know, and so. Uh, depending on the translation you're using in English, you know, you can have a very different exposure to Chekhov, you know? And and you can have a very different opinion. And there are some bad translations out there that you're like, this is just bad. I don't want to do this. And that come across as this, like, really sentimental, really, um, um, uh, oh, gracious, it just fell out of my brain. But that, uh, like telenovela what am I thinking yeah
0: of? melodramatic melodramatic you Absolutely. know and so many people yeah. identify
1: melodrama with Chekhov when in I fact know. like it's just it's supposed to be a direct answer to melodrama but anyway, yeah I know so Tyler did a great job of really like you know looking at our source text and reminding yeah. us of the Russian text and we kind of built this script based on Carol Rockamora's translations uh-huh. which you know Carol has become our like resident translation that oh, we cool. use because our plan is to do all plays all four plays in rep And so, um, we traveled to Tashkent and we had this amazing two weeks where we performed our seagull. We also performed in the midst of their company performing their rep, um, their rep pieces. We taught workshops. We, um, did like public events. I, I played the ambassador to Uzbekistan, the American ambassador. I played his grandfather's accordion on the steps of, of the, their like, you know, (laughs) ambassador's palace or whatever. It was unbelievable. And, and just a fun anecdote is that I sing in the show. I sing in three, in, um the seagull and coordinated the live music and so we have this beautiful song that's a Russian folk song but the tone of it is exactly at the center of the seagull uh-huh. and um is was really important narratively and John Langs is is one of my favorite directors because of the way that he incorporates especially musical themes and so we kind of built into the show this song that was a really simple song about a, a man being outside on a horse and being cold and praying that the frost wouldn't freeze him like a very, just a and not as um you know, the fact that it was in Russian translated it into this much larger esoteric field, you know. And so we as a company were singing this song as our warm-up, as our heart song, performing it in the show, and we were kind of asked impromptu to perform on the steps of, of the ambassador's house, and so I, like, got the accordion, and we started to sing, and we did this beautiful song, and, like, you know, in in the show, we, like, sing the same verse over and over again. But, of course, like, we're not Russian speakers, so it doesn't compute to us that we're basically singing, like, Yankee Doodle Dandy, like, over and over and over and over again. (laughs) And so somebody in the crowd from the Elkhorn Company was like, that was really lovely, but why aren't you singing all the words? (laughs) To me, and I was like, oh my god, you're right. And like, I had, you know, logically you like assume that that's true, but like you kind of ignore it because you're like, oh, the music is just so beautiful. <laughs> and so that night we like, I talked to Tyler and we like got a whole bunch of verses in Russian and we like translated it phonetically and we like had the cast oh learn gosh. it in like two days and we are like, we have to sing all these different words now, which is like the right choice, especially for a Russian speaking yeah. audience, you know? Oh gosh. And we performed our show you know, we performed a translation of a Russian play in English with Russian supertitles like an opera. So like they were uh-huh. projected above us. Um, so that was just like the, a, a very wacky moment of like oh my god we got sucked into the American trap of just like the sound is so great and right. you know for our production here in the states like it, that is, that's a that you know, that right because yeah, people that's are fine. it's the tone that we're creating right. you know what I mean but in a very different space with a very different approach with Russian speaking people we had to kind of shift our thinking into like not singing uh-huh. the first three words of the Star Spangled Banner like yeah. over and over and over yeah. again um, but that kind of that production was just an unbelievable believable experience for our company to kind of become nimble and mm-hmm. and and move quickly and let go of a lot of the production values that we had you know and and it accidentally restage itself in time you know because our our original production was was Very period, uh, very set in a period, you Uh know, and and designed impeccably by a team of designers that focused really heavily on period. But then when we traveled, we didn't bring anything with us besides what we can carry in our suitcase. So we kind of went into this like neutral, timeless contemporary land um, where each of us kind of furnished our character in a way that felt like timeless and. And pseudo-contemporary, which changed the feel of the production, but didn't change its heart, you know. And so it really illuminated for us a lot of options in terms Mm -hmm. of, like, how we work, what we do, what stories we tell, and the artists that we collaborate with. And so um, when we came back, we started work on Three Sisters, which opened last January at ACT Theatre. And um, that was a, a again like a totally a, a departure from the work that we had done previously in terms of we really like found this timeless period. Mm-hmm. The, the, the design are beautiful.
0: was beautiful. I haven't seen photos of Sebel, mm,
1: but. Mm. There's a definite shift, you know, and it's mm-hmm. in the same space, though, with the same company. And that's the cool thing about working in rep is that you have these same actors that are playing, yeah. in some cases, vastly different roles, and in mm-hmm. some cases, the roles that are very, very similar to the first. And, you know, you kind of see different different iterations of these characters. Yeah. And um, so it, it definitely expanded. And that the second show for us held m- a lot more elements of magical realism and of absurdity and of kind of exaggerated forms than maybe the first did and and that was our company growing with each other as actors and and with John Langs as our resident director and um, you know and incorporating all of his vast experience into kind of the work that we do as actors is really exciting and um, so yeah so the Three Sisters opened last year and uh, we are now in workshops and preliminary rehearsals for The Cherry Orchard which will open January 2017 and then after that Uncle Vanya which will open January 2019 And then um, the plan is, and this is all still in the works, but the plan is for us to perform all four in rep after that 2019 opening, Um, at which point we'll kind of be the center point of a festival here in Seattle. Uh So we'll be, um, the goal is to bring companies from all over the world who can kind of elaborate on these themes of Chekhov and, um, you know, and and our goal, too, is to incorporate a lot of uh, supplementary programming that kind of fleshes out. The, the, the work of Chekhov, you know, and not mm-hmm. just in these, like, really decadent main stage shows that showcase the, like, breadth of a one particular main mm-hmm. stage show, but to, you know, perform all this other work that kind of rotates on these themes, you know, and mm-hmm. the Sequel Project has always had The Great Soul of Russia, which is a reading series that uh-huh. focuses on a lot of different and um, themes in Chekhov. you're doing some
0: of his one-acts in mm-hmm. that, right? Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. yeah, the vaudevilles. There's a lot of, there's a lot of, you know, there's so much material, you know, that are not just the four major plays. Absolutely.
0: And they're golden. Right, right.
1: And for Chekhov, primarily, you know, considered by the Russian people primarily to be a short story writer. And truly, Mm -hmm. like, a a lot of his, like, maybe not most poignant work, but the work that is, like, so deeply sparkly and, like, such, you know, such gems are the short stories that are not usually performed in English. Mm -hmm. And so... Um, you know the, the the program is expanding to kind of incorporate a lot of different elements in terms of Chekhov, um, and you know I've served as a producer with the Seagull Project. I'm still a company member and have been for a while, and um, you know my role in the next two shows is still being kind of shaken out. But the uh, the goal of the company is to work long form, you know, mm-hmm. and, and to work long term. And in a lot of ways, I think that is one of the crossover pieces between the Libertinis working on Chekhov and the Siegel Project working on Chekhov because we've both been around for about the same amount of time and obviously we're working on very different work and we come from very different backgrounds, but um, it's important to me that that I respect both of them fully, and I do, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, and that I remember that the work is as important in both aspects, you know, and for me it's a, it's it has a lot to do with access, you know, and, uh-huh. you know, I love the Seagull Project and I love everything that we do and I know that because of where we perform and how we perform, we isolate certain communities. Mm-hmm. And the same thing for the Libertinis. You know, we access very different communities that, that maybe might go to those main stage shows that act, but we still isolate communities, you know? And so in both settings, my goal is always to like kind of continue to open the lens and say mm-hmm. like, well, who are we missing? And why are we missing them? Mm-hmm. And is it because we're not telling their story? Is it because we're not inviting them? Is it because we're not, Uh, making it even like financially accessible for them and so to kind of work in contrast in terms of like these shows that act that just practically have to they cost money and tickets cost money to fund them you know and and then to be in this space like the pocket which I so dearly love and Clayton Weller yeah. deserves like
0: The Pocket all the
1: stranger genius awards
0: Amazing what an incredible gift to truly, the Seattle theater community Truly
1: and it's, for those of you listening at home who don't yeah, know about the pocket do yourself a favor thing. research it and it's it's just an unbelievable model something yeah, it really is. really slick Yeah. something simple something volunteer based and something you know the Libertinees were proud to sponsor the pocket because we yeah. know that they provide a cost neutral space for producers. Right. and a risk free yeah. space. So the
0: way the pocket works to rent the s- use of the space for a production, mm-hmm. they just take the first twenty yep. tickets. Yep. When and it's a fifty seat house. Yeah. So Max. Max. You
1: feel full in there with yeah. thirty, Oh, you know. Man.
0: It's it's yeah. a small
1: it's a it's a converted storefront. Yeah. You know, and they, they put art in the lobbies. Mm-hmm. Their their bar is completely donation based. They have yeah, four they, so they have great. four <laughs> lights. I know it's awesome. Like <laughs> yeah, I'll take that beer. Give it that beer. Because, I don't know, the Libertini's motto is, like, drink it up, you know? Yes. We're kind of a... Uh, we, we strive to be, like, grandma's disco attic. you know? Yeah. So, like, bring your handles, go wild. <laughs> um, but, you know, in a space with four lights and, you know, 20 square feet of performance space yeah. and just, like, chairs that move around and, like... Sound, a sound board that's run off of somebody's computer and like an auxiliary cord mm-hmm. that is where magic happens and you know it yeah. was built by improvers and by stand-up comedians so it has that sense of like this is just a space but i've seen so much great theater
0: absolutely capital
1: t theater whatever right, the hell that right. is but like you know i've seen so many different things produced in that space and, and
0: uncle siegel was at the pocket i don't know right you said that Right,
1: right 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 that
0: was at the pocket
1: and we and was- have been just tickled to be involved with them you know clayton approached us before The Pocket existed, you know, in Mm -hmm. the the preliminary stages and um, kind of came to us and said like, hey, we have a lot of this, that, and the other thing, but we don't have a lot of whatever you are. And (laughs) would you be, would you, right, I know, (laughs) I'm like, who knows, you know, we're like this deliciously weird cocktail of theater and clown and burlesque. And so um, at that point, it became advantageous to both of us to really work together, you know, and we've developed such a strong relationship with Clayton with all the other people who work at The Pocket. There's just so many that tirelessly give themselves. To that space, and mm-hmm. you know, to making accessible work, and you know, the pocket caps their ticket sales at ten dollars. Yeah. You know, they're slightly more at the door just because you know that's an incentive to buy in advance, yep. but you know, ten dollar tickets to me is like absolutely essential. You know, like I wish it could be free, but that's like not how it works. But right. you know, having that ten dollar <laughs> ticket says right
0: free is actually uh, it's. Fast. Or pay what you will. Right, you right, will.
1: exactly. And, yeah. you know, som- and sometimes that opens the door and kind of evens things right. out, you know. In yeah. and, and my work as a producer, I find that yeah. to be true. Yeah. And, again, you know, having a space that says, like, $10 is all we're going to ask. And yeah. and having a space that's really transparent with, like, this is where those $10 will go. Yeah. Directly into, like, keeping the electricity on in the space primarily. And then after that, it goes to the producers, you right. know. And so we are And in, 10
0: bucks is so worth it. Right. It's right. one cocktail. Right. You know, like... It's so worth it.
1: You can it's, do that, you know? And the, and the yeah. coolest thing for me about The Pocket is that they program, like, three shows a night. Yeah. And so every night, there's a 7 o'clock, an 8.30, and a 10 o'clock. Yeah. And, like, you can go, you know, if you have 30 bucks that night, you can see a whole night of, like, the weirdest stuff that you could possibly imagine. <laughs> yeah. And, like, hit or miss, it doesn't matter. Because yeah. you're there in a space, pr- you know, encouraging live art. Mm-hmm. And, like, that's where a lot of stuff grows and is incubated, you know? And art. And some of our most fun nights at the pocket have been our one-offs and our party series and mm-hmm. our storytelling shows that are just kind of like lightning in a bottle. Like, we're just going to see what happens. Yeah. And we can't thank the people who show up for enough because they're part of that process, you know? And that's something that we really wanted to make clear during Uncle Seagull this last time mm-hmm. is that um, the, the same production, but even bigger and better, um, will be produced at the Seattle Fringe Festival. Mm-hmm. Um, the, Let's say uh, that again. Right. Uncle
0: Seagull is happening again. Woo! Yes. That will
1: be February 26th. 27th at nine o'clock and then March 4th and 5th at nine o'clock. So that's like the Friday, Saturday of the two fringe festival weekends we will be in the center house, which is the largest space curated for the Seattle fringe festival. It's our largest space yet, which is so exciting to us. Mm -hmm. Um, and also daunting because we have to get those butts in there, you know? Um, but, uh, You know, having a space where we could first produce Uncle Seagull at the pocket and really workshop this material and build it the way we build it, which for us means a lot of improv, a lot of personal writing, a lot of... We rehearse in our homes because we keep our costs low. You know, we are a super slim operation, and we rely on generous volunteers and people that work with us that that get paid not even a fraction of their worth as an artist or as a person. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, so we are kind of in this position where every cent counts for us and being in a space like the pocket that is risk-free is unbelievable and to build a show that is nimble and and cheap in the best mm-hmm. way you know mm-hmm. like we wear cheap as a badge of honor you know and, and we love that because you yeah. can tell a great story in cheap clothes yeah. um, that look awesome and are covered in glitter <laughs> so like you know having a, having a space to workshop Uncle Seagull and build it and for us that takes a long time and you know a lot of a lot of the process for each of our big shows is really spent in creating the work not necessarily quote rehearsing the work right, and you know yeah. as theater kids we always are like in this position of like oh man we want to rehearse more you know when you're doing a show that's published and you have the six weeks to like the script isn't changing and right. the the story isn't changing. Whereas with us, it's like lit- every minute it's changing. And like yeah. you know, the three of us, um, it's, it it sometimes falls to me to re- to like grasp onto the ad libs that we add as the performances go and uh-huh. like add them to the script. And like that's a fun process. But again, it takes your mind away from like really like polishing the nickel, you know, yeah. instead of like forging the nickel, right? and that's a, it's like it's a fun image, we love that you know yeah. and so like doing it at the fringe again will give us a chance to just polish that nickel further uh-huh. knowing that like it still won't be a quote finished pro- product because right. that's not our interest you know our yeah. interest is to like have just sexy stories and boundless mediums that just explode you mm-hmm. know and continue to grow mm-hmm. and um this is the first time that we've had an opportunity to restage one of our projects um because of the way we work and how we work. And yeah. since we do generative work, it, you know, we, we rely so heavily and love and appreciate the people that work with us. And in in most of our projects, they create those characters themselves. Uh-huh. They have license to that content. And we want to foster this environment that means equally as much to us as producers and generators as to those we work with. And mm-hmm. we want everybody to feel like they have ownership over their material. And But still know, and you know, from a company perspective, that we are the Libertinis, and we want this work to live on. And since this is a show that features just the three of us, it's it's an opportunity for us to do that. And to yeah. say, like, oh, well, this content we created with the express knowledge that it would live in the Libertini songbook forever, mm-hmm. and that we can pull it out whenever. You know, mm-hmm. and and as we look ahead to the rest of the season and our next season, you know, that's kind of... Um, that's our current focus, that's our current shift, you know, is creating work that lives in the Libertini songbook, mm-hmm. that lives in a world where we can take it on tour, where we can take it to all these other theaters, where we can hopefully get produced by by houses that can mm-hmm. let us throw our weird meatballs at the wall and, like, they can pound the pavement for us, you know, yeah, and, yeah. and, you know, keep doing those things. But the Fringe Festival, which we are so excited to perform in, will be a great test of that. And, mm-hmm. you know, and what we really encouraged our audience members this last time is that we are improvers at heart, you know? And so, like, anybody who came to see Uncle Seagull, like, no one saw the same show right. each night. Each night we tried new materials. Each night we tried new jokes. And we all kind of come from this really wily perspective of, like, a lot of it is improv in the moment. You know, you just whip something out. But, like, I will take full responsibility for being the person that kind of, like, comes up with a great joke and, like, won't mention it. And then, like, wait till we're in front of an audience and, like, (laughs) laugh. cry. And that's just, you know, and we all do that. You know, we all sit on our secret eggs of, like, this is going to be really funny. (laughs) And we've worked together for long enough that that is encouraged, you know, and that's part of our attitude (laughs) is that, like, I don't know what's going to happen. And... All three of us have reputations for this, but of just, like, zing, and, like, yeah. the other two trying to just, like, stand yeah. neutral and receive yeah. is just, like, really difficult <laughs> sometimes. But, you know, I think our audiences, we implied that a lot, but it was important for us this last show to say actively, like, your laughter at this joke will directly influence it being in the show, mm-hmm. or, like, you helping us figure out the timing of this bit will, unbe- like, directly influence the show that goes up at the Seattle Fringe Festival. And I, and that's exciting to me, you know, when yeah, artists share cool. that, when they like raise the curtain and say like, look at us building, I right. get more invested in the yes. art when I'm seeing it as an audience member. Absolutely. And I'm hoping that our audiences mm-hmm. feel the same way, you know, cause it's, that's always been true. But again, in this one, particularly since we're restaging. Yeah, um, for the first time, really, in a lot of ways, you know, and and uh, I'm so excited for that, and and so much material that was found on its feet at the pocket is now in the script for cool. for the Fringe Festival. Did you
0: know, wh- or I guess when did you decide or figure out or were invited to bring? Uncle Siegel to the Fringe.
1: We were approached by the fabulous Pamela Miatov, who Uh is the artistic director of Annex Theatre and one of Uh the uh, brains on the Seattle Fringe Festival. So we, this past September, hosted Smut the Bottle, uh, which was like an all-smut version of Spin the Bottle in Annex (laughs) Theatre. Which, like, (laughs) listeners... call Annex and tell him you want an annual because we are happy to do an all-smut version. But uh, after, that, after that night, uh, that very night, actually, Pamela approached the three of us and kind of gave us a soft pitch of like, hey, is this something you'd be interested in? And we jumped on the opportunity. And so since September, we've kind of had it in our brains. And, and Uncle so Siegel had already been f- planned. Like, to start. We had already right. planned to start rehearsals, but we found out, like, right before rehearsal started that this show would live on again, so it definitely influenced So, did thinking. she
0: invite you specifically to do Uncle Siegel or whatever you're She invited on, us to do whatever, whatever
1: we wanted. And chose that one. Right. Right. Because it was a show that we were looking at developing anyway, mm-hmm. you know, at that same time to go yeah. up in, at the pocket in November. Yeah. And a show that we were really excited, we, we you know... Because of the vastness of the source material, we knew that this was a great experiment to see. You know, like we yeah. had enough material to let this show live on. Yeah, you know, and and um, yeah. that that could be said of any of our our productions. But um, we're excited. And this one's
0: just the three of you. Yes,
1: yes. Which makes it for our life and schedule. You know, we have fewer moving parts, obviously, uh-huh. and. And again, like, we are the core that have worked together for the longest, and so we have a shorthand with each other, and we have a style, a a way of working Mm -hmm. that involves, like, a lot of tea and a lot of talk about our sex life, and then a lot of great work, you know, Mm -hmm. that happens really quickly, and um, we kind of live, we, we have developed the same attitude about, like, even memorized content, you know, it's like... I will give you your cue line. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's kind of the rule. Like, I will give you your cue line or something that is pretty close to your cue line, Uh and what happens before that is anyone's guess. (laughs) Um, But always with a focus on the narrative approach to our work, you know, being theater kids, like... It's important to us to create generative work that does have a narrative, yeah. and not all generative work does. Um, yeah. But ours happens to, you know, and, and our mission statement of telling sexy storytelling in boundless mediums is is true. You uh-huh. know, our story is our basis, and we as storytellers are really excited by that. Yeah, by that opportunity, you know. So this show, we did know in advance uh-huh. that we were going to bring it to the Seattle Fringe. Did that
0: change how you worked on it at all?
1: Um, I think that it did. It gave us an opportunity to let. A few squeaky wheels, be squeaky. Uh-huh. You know, which which happens anyway. Right. But when you're performing it, at, like Atomic Falls, our last huge show with a huge cast, um, which for us is like 10 people, uh, at the Ballard Underground, it was an unbelievably fun show and really, really built. You know, and when it's only though happening for four nights, you get you either um, have this attitude of like, uh, you see the squeaky wheels, but it's fine because. It's only, you know what I mean? Like, Mm -hmm. it exists in this moment in time, and those Mm -hmm. squeaky wheels are part of its charm. You know, or you get this attitude of, like, we have to prioritize the biggest squeaky wheel, which is this thing. Mm -hmm. You know, which narratively might not be the biggest squeaky wheel, but in terms of, like, what you're putting in front of an audience becomes the primary focus. Yeah. So when we kind of shifted our focus to thinking, like, oh, well, this is all an experiment. This is a workshop run of this show. It gave us a chance to really prioritize the things in the show that were important to us uh-huh. and really get to the core of, like, in this moment, what's more important, this piece of the story or this physical comedy bit? And, like, obviously, to our hearts, like, both are equally important. Mm-hmm. But, like, what do we actually have the time to do, to work on, Yeah, you know? And so yeah. it definitely, in different ways, reprioritized those mm-hmm. things and gave us a chance to say, like, well, this bit we will simplify in this setting because it, we have the time to do that and we will expand it later, you know, as opposed to, like, in a different process. We might have spent a lot of rehearsal time on this bit because it's, like, a trademark bit for us Uh Um, and kind of neglected other things that needed work, too, you know, And, and that's the fun thing about generating new content is that everything always needs work you know it's like working on a car like there's always something that you can do to the car to make it more awesome yeah um you know so like there's always we're always tinkering you know and so having that attitude explicitly from this one because we always have that you know and we always go into our shows thinking like how can we make every part of this better but having a specific mindset about like well, let's just keep each workshopping the things that we do. And Mm -hmm. this show for us, we are all producers as well as performers and generators. And so we kind of cover all the design aspects. We bring in some designers, um, specifically Anna Freeland, who is one of the city's best lighting designers, Emily Long, all these beautiful people, Noel Barbudo. Um, But, you know, we for this show kind of took the brunt of design. And Mm -hmm. so um, myself, I'm a sound designer and a choreographer. And so throughout all of our shows, I kind of thread that, Thread throughout is like giving us really these like ridiculous lush landscapes with a lot of like sound jokes and um, physical comedy that we're all very adept in, but it's helpful to have like one brain to kind of shape yeah. those things, you know. Yeah. And so, um, in this show, I kind of worked as sound designer and and choreographer. And then Tootsie is an unbelievable wardrobe mistress, and so uh, she really led the charge on working on costumes um, in partnership with Fantasia Osland, an unbelievable costume designer in town. Um, and the costumes
0: so, costumes
1: are. They're, They're great, ridiculous, They're really right? Great. Oh yeah, yes. oh yeah. For those of you listening, it's a lot of like leotard action, a lot of like rid- wings, and a lot of orange legs. <laughs> so good. <laughs> We're glamour seagulls, yeah. And uh, you know, <laughs> seagull face that kind yeah. of resembles clown makeup, which is, is totally fun and intentional. And so, um, Tootsie really like handle, and there's a lot. It, it you know, it doesn't seem like a lot, but. You know, again, our basis of burlesque in this show happens to be when we transform from baby seagulls into grown-up seagulls, um, which isn't a necessarily complicated to reveal, but does require, like, a lot of weird costuming things. You know, and Hattie being our props master on this show. And, again, it seems like it's in a lot of ways it feels like our lightest show, but in a lot of ways it's our heaviest show because we built everything from scratch. Mm -hmm. Where in our other shows we can pull, you know, 1950s bunker, we can pull in a lot of Mm pre-existing material and a lot of furniture that's like, and throw it up and have it live in this like weird, wacky like grandma's auction world. Um, But for the show we really had to build so many things from scratch. Mm -hmm. And and so many things were brilliant in the show, but she presents to the sisters a bouquet made of trash and used condoms. (laughs) and it's one of my favorite jokes of ours to date Um, But that took a lot of work, you know, to create this, like, really effective condom (laughs) bouquet. Um, And there are a lot of, every part of this show we can really point to and be like, wow, that took me a lot of time. And, like, it might not look like it did, but that's the, I think that's the fun of good theater. You know, being theater makers is, like, I spend so much time and heart on this thing that's, like, such a passing joke. You know, and something that we posted on social media was um, (laughs) Tootsie came up with this great joke of, of my character Sasha walking in, I'm a school teacher, and walking in with a tote bag. Um, that is basically all wings considered the NPR show um, by Robert Siegel. And so, you know, it took a lot of time to make that bag, and it's like a 30 second joke that is really important to us, you know, and, and as comedians, like we value a good yoke. And so, uh, especially in the show. So, the show really like put our <clears throat> pedal to the metal in terms uh-huh. of like testing our design capabilities, and you know, we all have different backgrounds I, it's in those things. The,
0: the transition from Baby Seagull to grown-up Seagull is so subtle. It like took me a little while to kind of realize that that's what was happening, but it's so flawless. Thank it's you. really great. Thank it's you. It's really effective.
1: Simple. Especially
0: with how the show starts. Right. It's, right. It's very. I loved that attention to detail and Thank continuing you. that story of yeah and and that arc. And again, that came
1: right out of rehearsals. You know, one of the earliest jokes we knew we wanted was the three of us breaking out of human-sized eggs. Um which again were like the biggest pain in the butt to create but so fun to be inside of and I know know the other two won't mind and and some of our more gross fans will love it but I think consistently every time we got inside of these huge human sized eggs we forgot that like they're not ventless you know what I mean so like Mm -hmm. I was notorious for like farting as soon as I got in my egg (laughs) which is basically like a huge dutch oven like a speckled dutch oven Um. and we're like in them for a while so you know you live and learn now I know Um. but yeah You know, we knew we really wanted to break out of these huge eggs and, like, kind of have this, like, Bugs Bunny-esque opening number of being these baby seagulls, and in kind of talking about that, we realized, like, that we wanted to hatch as baby baby birds, you know, and and, and then Tootsie built us these, like, beautiful baby, ridiculous, like, clown jumpsuits out of scratch material, and, um, you know, we knew we wanted to, like, spit food into each other's mouths, and so, so all this weird stuff that, again, like, was, like, wouldn't that be funny if becomes like the core jokes of our shows always you know and so um well it was fun that way
0: yeah the food and it's just all these little details of the life of a bird yeah being a bird and what that experience is to be a bird that are incorporated so seamlessly you don't like draw too much attention to them and it's not like i'm a bird right you know right 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 you just are characters we're just just living personalities yeah that's a circumstance of being a bird
1: right Right, and thank you for noticing and recognizing that because that, again, relates to a lot of our clown background in uh-huh. terms of, like, this is just the reality of the situation right. that we're in. Yeah. And here we are, you mm-hmm. know, and, and from a bird perspective, that was important to us. Yeah, and, it didn't know,
0: make it a caricature, I guess. Thank you. It was you. very, Very
1: like, seamlessly through. Yeah, and, you yeah. know, like, we unashamedly all really deeply love, like, BoJack Horseman, for example, the show on Netflix, and think it's genius. And there are so many animal illusions in that show that are just, like, so well crafted Uh and what we wanted to take from that was this attitude of like this again is not a caricature of a bird this is like the life of a bird right you know if if we could personify birds Mm -hmm. this is exactly what it would be these weird social orders and these weird habits of like you know anytime they eat somebody's vomiting into somebody else's mouth right you know this is just stupid things that just like make the whole thing better and like a tagline that we came up really quickly and early for the show was every birdie hurts Um, and so then that became, like, okay, well, we never say person, we never say, you know, every time we say the word body, it's always birdie, Uh you know, and kind of going through the script, and we got mixed feedback, it's, like, some people that we really love and respected were, like, there are way too many bird puns, and then... Other people were like, "There are not enough bird puns, and so I think that was a matter of taste, but for us, it was like, Well, go big or go home. every right. pun is a bird pun, you know yeah. and um, yeah. we're we're kind of punny people, so we were able to whip out a lot of like weird, weird bird puns all over the place, yeah, but it's a great test of our you know of all of our skills as writers, as comedians as actors, and you know again, it was important to us to approach this as we would an actor, you know like if we were playing um any of the three sisters as as actor you know if we were doing it in like a quote serious context mm-hmm. if we were doing quote serious theater <laughs> how would we approach these characters yeah. and what reality would we bring to these characters and it was important for us to do that and we realized in this show i realized particularly that you know it it was different than a lot of our shows in terms of like i couldn't rely on a lot of my usual tricks in terms of like hmm. um something that shifted for us in this show was uh, we are so presentational, and that's part of our brand and part of what we love and and value. Uh-huh. And in so many of our shows, m- most of it is played directly to the audience, and the audience is a scene partner. The audience is our prime for me, uh-huh. my primary scene partner. Mm-hmm. And Hattie and Tootsie and the other people we work with, I love and trust so much that I know that they're just like. In my way of thinking, it's, like, the audience and me. You know, in the classical sense of, like, who's your scene partner? It's the Uh audience and me. And me being the collective me of everybody on stage. We're all, like, playing with the audience. That's our goal. Whereas in this show, I had to shift my thinking back to, like, my classical trained actor brain. Which Uh is, like, no, these people are my partners. And the audience is a part of that in a different way than usually in our shows. You know, whereas, like... It, it changed the focus for me from, like, out into the fourth wall yeah. to, like, into these two people that have always been there for me, and, you know, in any show that we do, is they're always my, like, scene partners, obviously, but shifting my focus was was a change for me. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it took took me shifting the way I think about our work and the possibilities of our work. And, you know, being in a workshop environment. I tried firing some things out to the audience that like immediately when I did them was I was like, uh, not necessary, not appropriate in this show, in, oh, in this yeah, time, you know. It was curious. Yeah. I didn't expect that evolution yeah. of thought. It was a it was a an eye opening experience, you know, and uh, being somebody yeah. that comes from a mixed bag of theater training mm-hmm. and um that admittedly really struggled with theater school and was like did not suit me. I think there are some people that go to theater school and they're like really good at it. I was like <laughs> not good at it. Oh, boy. Um you know and grew up uh with a lot of different art influences, but kind of had a really hard time in theater school and the ways of thinking about like traditional theater training yeah um yeah, just it's don't not make a lot for, of sense it's to not me for everyone and like and and what was always true is that I always felt like I am a great performer, and this is what i this is what I will do with my life, but mm-hmm. like I have a really hard time thinking in terms of action and objective like and you know and really taking the time to like make that okay, you know, uh-huh. and I and that's like something that it will be forever like a torch that I carry is like, it's okay if that doesn't make sense to you. Yeah. You figure out the way around it. You know? Yeah. And when I was training in New York, I notoriously was I was in a BFA program that was jury based and I was kicked out of the BFA program my sophomore year um because I and admittedly I should have been because I was doing shitty work. But also I knew that I was doing shitty work and I was asking for help and wasn't receiving it mm. from And, and that's no fault of anybody's like, I was in an environment where they only knew how to train in a particular way. And when I asked for, when I asked for anything else, you know, I wasn't afforded that. And Mm -hmm. being somebody who's like, when I'm not performing, I'm teaching and I have been my whole life. And so like, I understand the value of alternative approaches to education, no matter what the field. Uh And so I was asking for those alternatives and they don't seem to exist in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. And in most theatrical settings, they don't exist. Yeah. And so I had a teacher who, upon kicking me out of the program and I asked for more clarity, one of the things he told me, the primary thing, is that I would never work except in children's theater because I'm too gay. Thank you. All right. Richard Niles. Um, Right. All right. Coming from, like, the queeniest... Theater Sorry. teacher yeah. on the Upper East Side, awesome. you know what I mean, um, which is just like so. There are so many things wrong with that that yeah. I like won't even go into right now. But that really stoked my fire in terms of like that's not true. I know right. that's factually not true, and I'm going to prove to myself that that's not true. Mm-hmm. Like I don't care about you, yeah. but like I'm going to prove to myself. You know, and going yeah. on tour was a reset. And actually, that's where Tootsie and I met. We both toured with the Missoula Children's Theater. Oh, neat. Yeah. So uh, we great. taught on different teams, but we uh-huh. were in the same tour class. So basically, cool. we would come together in Missoula. And you know, One of our
0: ISF company members is on tour oh, right now.
1: Oh, nice, yeah. nice. It's just such an amazing program that yeah. I will always believe in. And and actually, that's our biggest, our strongest binding tie, is that Hattie grew up a Missoula kid and grew oh, up doing wow. the camps. every. She, like, went to Missoula for, like, the bigger cool. camp. You know, uh-huh. she is, like, a real deal Missoula kid. And Tootsie <laughs> and I, Tootsie is actually from Great Falls, Montana, and so has a, has a closer base to them. And uh-huh. um, we all grew up kind of, and that's our, like, our through line is that Tootsie yeah. and I met on tour, and we, like you know, notoriously sat on a pool table in the middle of a game and, like, talking about our feelings at a bar one night. And, like, we've been <laughs> best friends ever since. And then Hattie and Tootsie met first um, at Indigo Blue School of Burlesque and um, then kind of brought me in. And, like, now Hattie and I are, you know, all three of us are inseparable and we each have our own bonds, you know, in a group of three. But, um, you know, tour really recharged my ability to think um, cause I, I really deeply don't believe that those who can't do teach in some context that's true, but I think more so teachers have a greater understanding of their strong suits, you Absolutely. know, and, and in teaching theater in a very simplified form to the masses, you know, in this country and to kids in this country, I was reminded of the basics and I was reminded of like, oh, I don't. I'm, I might have a hard time with the concept of, like, action objective or, like, playable verbs. But, like, I totally <laughs> understand how to be present and how to yeah. look at a scene partner and how to get into the mindset of a character. You know, those are all mm-hmm. the basics that I know and that I encourage kids to do every day. And so after I finished my year on tour... I looked for a program that would accept my transfer credits was basically my biggest requirement, um, and Cornish was the only one. Uh, wow, really? And I'm thankful because I learned a lot at Cornish, and I, I kind of changed as an artist, and it wasn't until I moved here that I became a generator. You know, that wasn't mm-hmm. part of my paradigm on the East Coast because it's huh. not really part of the, the deal there. You know what right. I mean? Like, it does, You're not required to make your own work, whereas I feel like in Seattle it's kind of like, um, for better or for worse, it's like this assumption of like, well, you don't self-produce. Mm-hmm. which is, like, a ridiculous assertion, but also, like, has taught me a lot, you know, yeah. and changed the kind of artist that I am. Yeah. Um, and so, kind of, like, bringing that training back into the setting of, like, Cornish... Again, like, posed a lot of challenges, but I met a few teachers that really took the time to help me figure out the way that I communicated and the way that I learned and the way that I could become a better artist, you know. And my work changed drastically when I went to Cornish. And, mm-hmm. and I very much don't attribute it to, like, the Cornish system, but I attribute it to those few particular individuals that really, like, helped me blossom mm-hmm. and that gave me the confidence to know that, like, you can make the weird shit that you want to make. Um, and the Libertinis have just been a part of that the whole time. And I'm really thankful. You know, I, I yeah. again, like, uh, I'm an honorary Cornish kid, and I think that the artist that I am is not necessarily from my full training at Cornish, but from those particular teachers that I accessed through Cornish. Mm-hmm. And um, that, that reminded me that there are a million ways to, you know, skin a chicken or whatever, and, and a million ways to make theater. And, and, th- and that kind of approach has taken me all over the place, you know, to performing in, Uz- in Uzbekistan right. in this, like, really classical setting with these veteran equity actors to like doing the weird shit that we do to like being a pole dancer at Pony to being a stand-up comedian that talks about prostates. You know, I'm like, I'm all over the place. And I, I am thankful that I have a support system around me that reminds me that like that all contributes to the greater whole of being a a capital G great artist. Yeah. And nobody can tell you what that is or show you what that is. But I think, you know, telling good stories is really the only requirement and like making good art.
0: Definitely. You know,
1: and there's so many ways to do that. And Seattle has afforded me those things and it's definitely not a city for forever for me but it's a great city for now and it's an unbelievable home base based Mm -hmm. on the people that I work with and the people that I love and the work that I have you know and the libertinis is like such a strong binding tie for me Mm -hmm. in terms of um, you know I really I spent a long time thinking about like well what context can I what context is it, going to be perfect for me. You know, and I've done a lot of musical theater and I've had the opportunity to work off-Broadway and in all these different contexts that mm-hmm. were exciting, but, like, not fully suited to my skill set. You know, mm-hmm. it's, it was always, yeah. like, I'm using a lot, but, like, these things that I really love to do, and even the shows that I work on with other companies in town that I love and respect, it's like I'm doing a lot of things that I love to do, but, like, I'm not utilizing all of my weird potential. <laughs> Whereas the Libertini's, every time, I feel like I'm utilizing all of my weird uh-huh. potential. And... And that's what makes us, I think such a weird, awesome, dynamic crew and And you know the more people that come to our shows and the more people that generously support us with their time and their money and their their just their presence and their love um I think that they feel that fire and they encourage us because truly, what I found with the Libertinis is a once in a lifetime experience for me and and you know my way of thinking is shifting every day to like. Okay, well, instead of consistently pounding the pavement to, like, find all these projects that I'm, like, half-heartedly invested in, Mm -hmm. like, that's a waste of energy and time. And, like, to instead invest in, like, this is the real McCoy for me. And, like, maybe that means for the rest of our lives we perform at a Pocket for 20 people. Maybe that means we take over the world. I'm hoping for the latter. (sighs) And I think that we have the capacity for the latter, you know? Yeah. It's about, for me, shifting my thinking into, like, this is what I've trained for. Mm -hmm. Like, it's, I haven't trained just to perform at the Fifth Ave, Mm -hmm. you know, and, and I would welcome that opportunity if it came in the right way, but, like, what I've trained for is fully throwing myself at the wall with these two other goons that, love and appreciate me, and that truly love and trust me, you know, yeah. and, and our mantra before every show is, I love you and I trust you, and that's really become true in yeah. such a deep way, you know, and not just this, like, auxiliary laying on of, like, we're going to trust each other, like, I know that when we go out and improv in front of an audience, like, yeah. they will roll with me, yeah. they will always roll with and you me. you have
0: to have that trust, yeah. that's a, a, that is a scary, scary thing yep. for me, Yeah, improv is, like, very intimidating, yeah. and I do not feel comfortable in that setting, right. and it is, Not what I trained for, and it is freaky. Right. Having that trust is key, and that's so beautiful to build this kind of little group that you get to do that and create right, that. and
1: right. And I think any of us would tell you is, like, improv also terrifies us in any <laughs> other context. Rather, like, we're not improv... Like, there are so many people at The Pocket who are, like, world-class improvers, who are truly, like, sketch improvers. Yeah. We do not do that, you know? And, like, <laughs> some of us can do that, some of us can't, but, like, that's not... I think any of us would tell you, like, that's horrifying. Like, the idea of, like, being in an improv troupe, oh, like, God. it just makes me want to cry yeah, out of yes. fear, you know? And, like, respect and fear... Yeah. but thinking yeah, like exactly. but being in a world where like there's just something about the way the three of us work that we can create a world that's so secure to us even in our brains and a lot of that comes in our process you know we yeah. s- we throw out 90% of the material that we create or we don't throw out necessarily but we internalize that material it doesn't go into our scripts but it goes into our way of thinking we spend more time and uncle Siegel talking about the Pun intended. Pecking order of birds, and talking about like, well, what's our social status? How do we interact with this character? Uh-huh. What about like, what's our what's our relationship to Mr. Squirrel-Off? And like, you know, we spent a lot of time talking about those things, and they never come up in the script. But I hope that anyway, audiences feel like a subterranean level of like, oh, there's something going on there, you know. Definitely,
0: and, and, and I think even that's the goal. even if you're not gonna like, you know, have an exposition moment of like here's our story of this. Having that knowledge and sharing that as a collective only serves to make the piece richer and stronger.
1: And and in an improv environment, it reminds us of like the what is you know, what is doable in improv. Yeah. You know what I mean? When we've all made this assumption in rehearsal that, like, this is the way we interact with this character, that I'm not going to fire off a weird joke that d- that counters that right. idea. You know, it yeah. creates a level of trust in terms yeah. of, like, we all know the rules.
0: Yes, And so now exactly. we can break
1: them together. Yeah. You know, and I can trust that you're not going to do something that's so out of character that it breaks the world of this play. Uh-huh. Like, anything that you do is like, a true clown, like, based in this, like, that is 100% what you would do in that setting. Yeah. You know, and that comes verbally for us, but also physically. You know, we've uh-huh. discovered a lot of physical jokes in the in the run of Uncle Siegel at the yeah. Pocket that were really, like, that is 100% in keeping what you would do right uh-huh. there. But I just never saw you do that in rehearsal. And, like, you didn't know that you would do that, you know? And mm-hmm. having an audience really does that, you know? And, like, luxuriates in jokes for us. Mm-hmm. And, like, we, we are hopefully masters of the long joke and we like hope hope to be only better at the long joke of like this joke we love that cycle of like this is funny this is not funny anymore it's funny again when are they going to end this is hilarious yeah you know so getting to the this is hilarious point is like five layers deep right but you know it's fun to get there and it's fun to like let it fail too like there are plenty of times that like we wait way too long for a joke and then it just is like Alright, move on. <laughs> Thank you. You know, and like being in a space where we could just like laugh it off is is important, you know, and like even this last time there was a show where all the sound keys are stored on my computer and I forgot my computer. <laughs> And it was like 20 minutes before curtain at the pocket and I live the furthest you can live in Seattle from the pocket and I don't have a car. So it was like, and just being (laughs) in a space with my two best friends and then being able to be so pissed at me. Like there's no doubt that it was like so infuriating, but having, knowing them so well and having both of them say like, all right, well see it when I see it and you know like them giving me their card and me like screaming at myself in the car on the way home and like screaming all <laughs> in my full bird like this is a true checkoff oh moment I'm in like my full bird makeup with my hair piece in my like clown it's like raining but I'm so hot in the car so I have the window open it's like hitting me in the face I'm like so angry at myself and like in the grand scheme not a huge deal we delayed the show which is never something we want to do but our audience right. was so gracious but just, like, screaming at myself for the full 40 minutes that it took for me to get there and back, you know, like, get all my stuff. And, like, walking in, into a space where both of them were like, all right, well, here we go. And I was like, that, un- that more than anything is what I need, you know. Yeah. It's just a space where people are like, yeah, yeah, you yeah, fucked up. Okay. You Mm -hmm. know, and, and knowing that that's okay, you know, and, and we all do that in different ways, you know, and like, I sincerely hope that I will never forget my computer again. Like, I've definitely like, (laughs) fool me once, shame (laughs) on me, but now like, mm -mm, I'm just going to carry it everywhere just in case. (laughs) But being in a space where that is true is, is again, unbelievable. And, um, you know, I, I truly believe that we're going to take over the world. And in order to do that, you know, we, we keep fostering this sense in ourselves of like working independently. To make ourselves better artists, but in a lot of ways, and I think any of them would tell you this, is that we do our truly best work together. Mm -hmm. And I never expected to find that. I never expected to be an ensemble person, or a a troupe person, um, or a generative person, you know, and now that the thought of those things not existing for me is horrifying. Wow. And the thought of me going back to, like, the regular grind of, like, well, you know, two, uh, two monologues and a song and, like, hoping to work, and I believe in that kind of theater and mm-hmm. I, I welcome the opportunities to work on those kinds of theater, but to go back to a perspective where that's all I do is is not of interest to in me anymore yeah. and kind of, like, makes me sad, <laughs> you know? And, and only because I've now found this thing, you know, I've, like, tasted this, like, yeah. mystery flavor of ice cream that, like, I'm never going to go back to vanilla. And vanilla yes. has its place, but I'm, I am don't want to let it go. And mm-hmm. thankfully I don't have to right yeah. now, you know, and, and yeah. hopefully not for a really long time.
0: That's really awesome. Yeah. That's a good note to end on. I think yeah. I'm sure we're... We're
1: doing yes,
0: it. we're we're... Good. So, um, for tickets to Uncle Seagull. Yeah, tickets
1: to Uncle Seagull. Keep an eye out on our Facebook page and on our website. TheLibertinis. Um, TheLibertinis.com. We're also, uh, interact with us on the social media. We're on the Twitter. Yeah, we're on the Instagram. Are. We're on the Facebook. Um, a lot of weird, funny stuff coming out all the time. And so, our tickets for Uncle Seagull will go live very soon. You can keep cool. posted and we'll share that through Facebook and through uh, our website. As um,
0: will Theatrical Mustang. will let you awesome, know. Awesome.
1: Thank you. And I'll say, happens. too, that we do have a show coming up in the short term not this coming Sunday uh, the next one depending on when this airs I'm not sure but January 24th at the pocket at 7pm we have our season fundraiser, um, emphasis on the fun um, mm-hmm. and we'll all be telling true holiday horror stories with oh, some God. of our best friends like Jackie Miedema and Cindy La Rosa and Clayton Weller and Marcus Gorman um, who are all telling stories of, of just like holiday debauchery um, there'll be leftover ham and flabon- <laughs> flabongo which is our like trademarked like big uh, t- basically a beer bong using a, a lawn flamingo. Um, so it's just going to be right. a good weird time. So that's coming up, not this coming Sunday, but the next one, um, if this airs in time. Uh, if not, then get to Uncle Seagull, and um, we'll keep you posted. But interact with us on the Facebook. That means a lot. And I know that sounds really silly, but you know, a presence on on social media just helps us up our, our space. to yep. And you know that more than I, anybody.
0: I do know that. Ooh.
1: I am so well aware. <laughs> yeah. So well aware. Indeed. It takes a lot of
0: time to build yeah. that out. So, yeah. you know, support.
1: Yes. Support all of and the... And thank you. Yeah. This was such a great interview. Thank you so Perhaps much. Perhaps one of the best I've, I've ever done.
0: Oh, no, You no,
1: foster no. a talking environment.
0: <laughs> well, we talked about Chekhov. <laughs> right. So, you know, right. that's Worked like... for both of us. Yeah, that's fine. And Uncle Siegel, which, like I said, one of the best things I've ever seen. I love it. I think even if you don't know anything about Chekhov, absolutely. it absolutely stands on its own. Yeah. It's... Just really you're not funny. gonna miss out on the jokes. No, no, you
1: know? you're not. You're not gonna miss out. Definitely Either way, not. it's three of us dressed as clown seagulls in the cherry orchard. Right. So yeah. not So it's you really funny. Yeah.
0: But if you are someone who's familiar with Chekhov and has any experience with those characters and those lovely plays, then it's even more outrageous. I, Katie, actually, I went with Katie, and yeah. she doesn't. She's not got a background in Chekhov, mm-hmm. and she thoroughly enjoyed it.
1: Good. And That's what we love also, to hear.
0: Enjoyed the experience of sitting next to me. Right. <laughs> right, Freaking out right. the whole time. Right.
1: In so, that show, yeah, particularly, you could tell the people that have read the place because, yeah. like, there's a lot of weird illusions. So, thanks for being more. one of those. Yeah.
0: So, thank you so much. Mm-hmm. This was mm-hmm.
1: wonderful. And thank you. And thank good you. Good luck listeners.
0: with the uh, remounting of Uncle Seagull. I can't wait.
1: Oh, we're going to mount it.
0: Yeah. <laughs>